Well, good morning again. I can't tell you uh, how good it is to be back. Uh, I had, uh, was gone last week to uh, Colorado to visit my family, and I've never been a flatlander, what they Coloradoans call flatlanders, which is people that live at sea level. And um, I am now a flatlander, so I went back and I tried to hike and do all the things that I normally did, and, and it, was, uh, it was a challenge. There's not a lot of oxygen out there in Colorado, so it's good to be back, it's good to have my lungs back, and it's good to, to sing with you guys. Um, I sure missed you. So um, we're going to start a new series to this morning, which I'm really excited about, called A Tale of Two Kingdoms. And we're going to take a look, um, kind of a summary look, at the difference between Saul, King Saul's kingdom, and King David's kingdom, and what the differences are. Um, Before I do that, though, I want to mention, I know some of you are probably wondering about our youth director search, Um, and that search is going really well. Uh, We have a candidate that the search committee has recommended to the elders, and so the next stage is going to be the elders uh, taking a look and interviewing that candidate and seeing um, if if that candidate matches the the direction that Grace Chapel is headed in. So that's really exciting. It seems like we're, we're making some really good progress, so keep those prayers coming and um, we look forward to, uh, to having you guys meet him as well at some point. So uh, that's what's coming up. So as we talk about um, the tale of two kingdoms, um, but before I do that, I want to pray. Can we pray? I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. That'll be good. Okay, let me pray. Jesus, uh, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word. And God, I ask that you, you speak to us through it. Lord, I've, I've prepared this message, and, I, and I've got all these words written down, but Lord, I, I, I don't want to speak my words. I want to speak your words. So God, in the midst of all the craziness of life, and the busyness of summer, and everything that's hitting us right now, I ask that you would give us a moment, that you would allow us to pause in time and consider your words, Lord, because your words are the most important words. So I ask that you would speak through this message this morning and through your word. We love you, and in your name, amen. Think back to a time when you grew the most or the fastest in your life. When was a time in your life where you grew the fastest? You had the most, the deepest insights, the most awe-inspiring moments, when, when Scripture maybe came alive to you and, and you matured. You, this is the time that you, if you have any gray hairs, that gray hairs showed up. When did you learn? When did you grow? If I'm honest, and I have to be honest because I'm standing up here, right? That's the rule. (laughs) If I'm honest, the times that I've grown the most in my life are the most painful times in my life. The times where I wasn't sure what was going to happen next, the times where I wasn't sure how we were going to pay that next bill or what the diagnosis was going to be or where my job status even stood. Those are the times that I felt the most growth. And growth is a funny thing because it doesn't seem like you grow in the moment. But when you look back on those times, you can see this growth pattern. You can see the trajectory go up. So when was the time in your life that you grew the most? Maybe it's right now. Maybe it was six months ago. Maybe it was when you were 15 years old. Think about that. And I think that as we think about that, We have to admit that they were the most difficult times. And we have this love-hate relationship with trials, don't we? Love-hate. It's painful. It's difficult. Some of the most unbelievable things people have shouldered, even in this room. But it's also the time that God seems to be the most real 
and the, and the closest and the most intimate. It's a fantastic uh, thought process, as long as we don't have to experience it, right? As we think about um, trials and difficulties, um, listen to what C.S. Lewis had to say. God whispers to those, to us in our pleasures, and He speaks in our conscience, but He shouts in our pains. I think that's a really interesting perspective. Now, don't hear me say, I want pain. (laughs) I don't want it. But there is a benefit in it, and I think that's important. You see, God uses the hard parts in our lives to teach us who He is. And it might be just the simple message that He's trustworthy, that He's good, that He cares about you, but He speaks to us in these times. And I think we have a choice. We can stick our head in the sand, we can plug our ears with our our fingers, and we can sing la-la-la-la and ignore it, or we can be open, and we can be open and humbly waiting the instruction of our Father. And I think that's the challenge this morning. And this is something that both King David and King Saul experienced in their lives. And to take a look at both men, it actually is, is really complicated what the difference between Saul and David were. And you're going to hear me say this a lot, but they both sinned. They both repented. They both sinned again. They both repented again. And there was this pattern in both of their lives of sinning and repenting. But yet, God utterly, spoiler alert, God utterly rejected Saul. And he called David a man after his own heart. So I want to know what the difference is. I want to know what the difference between David and Saul really is. The first two things that we know about Saul, and I'm going to give you the Josh version. Okay, so this is the Josh version back's history. So I would really recommend you read it. Um, second, uh, 1 Samuel 9 is where you find Saul's anointing, where he gets uh, crowned king of Israel. He's the first king of Israel. And this is the way the story goes, okay? Saul, the first thing that we know about Saul, other than his lineage, his good upstanding lineage of his father and his father's father, we learn that Saul is really attractive. We actually find out that he's the most attractive man in all of Israel. So he's got that going for him. That's the first quality that we find in Saul. And the second thing that we find out about Saul is that he lost a bunch of donkeys. And if you know donkeys, they run off, so you got to keep track of them, right? So Saul is out kind of canvassing the countryside looking for a herd of donkeys. That's as random as it sounds. It doesn't really make sense in the story either. But he's out there looking for donkeys, and, and up walks this guy named Samuel, the local prophet, the guy who knows God and tells people what God says. And Samuel says, hey, Saul, check it out. It's your lucky day. You get to be king today. And Saul goes, great. <laughs> That's it. That's the way that he gets inducted into kingship. He literally won the lottery, and he wasn't even playing the lottery. He just was looking for donkeys. I'm going to start looking for donkeys. (laughs) Big benefit. So he gets this lottery ticket, and he wins. And he, he went from being normal, everyday guy, albeit really hot, apparently, to king, right? Wow, crazy. Now, don't get me wrong, Saul did some really great things. 
He united the military in Israel. Before Saul, they just had prophets. They didn't have a king. And this was a big exchange between Samuel, the local prophet, and God in the, the Israel, the nation. They're saying, we want a king. And, and God is saying, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Give them a king, even though a king's going to be hard, and, and on and on and on. So fine, they anoint Saul king. So there's this tension. But he's their first king. They didn't have a united military. It was like whoever could get the biggest group of guys together, go fight our enemies, that would be great. Saul unites the military, and he immediately has this huge battle with the Amorites, and the Amorites lose, and Saul is victorious. He, and, and it's like this, yes, Israel is finally a, an actual country that people respect because we can fight battles and win, and it's this wonderful thing. Well, in our story, the Philistines start getting upset with Israel. Now, the Amorites, or, I'm sorry, the Amalekites are, are one group. They're a pretty tough group of people. But the Philistines, they're like the big dog on block, right? They are the one to be feared. And Saul and his little band of, this little cute army uh, are now facing this massive force, experienced fighting men, the Philistines. But he did good things. And, and the difference between Saul and David is not lack of sin, because if you know anything about David, he was a sinner like you and I, and, and so was Saul. They both made mistakes. And it wasn't even the repentance, because they both repented of their sin. It was something else that sets these two men apart. They were both men of intelligence. They both had a, a, a military experience and understanding so what was the difference? Let's take a look at our passage this morning. This is 1 Samuel chapter 13, and we're going to go the last part of 7, verse 7, all the way to 14. And Ted's going to put the words up there behind me so you can follow along or you can turn there in your, in your Bible. Starts off like this, Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops who were with him were quaking with fear because the angry Philistines who are, are really experienced in battle. Verse 8, he waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. This is Saul's first trial. Here's where things get tough. So, he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering, and verse 10, just as he finished making the offering, maybe not coincidentally, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. We'll stop there for a second. There is a pattern, and if you have time, read through first and even second Samuel, and you'll see this pattern, especially in Saul. Things get really hard. You can tell he starts to get scared, and he panics and he decides for himself what should happen. Now, if you read that little section, you go, well, what's the big deal? Saul is, is afraid, so he's reaching out to God for comfort, right? That looks pretty good. That's, that's what we should do as believers. When things get hard, we reach out to God, and we, and, we, and we trust Him because He's the trustworthy thing. But that's not the whole story. You see, Samuel and God decided ahead of time that Samuel would give these offerings. And if you dig a little further in Israel's history, 
It was the law for the prophet to give the offering. See, it was the prophet's job to connect God to the people. That's the prophet's job. The prophet understands or talks to God, and he translates it to the people, and the people obey. And the people have a problem, and they cry out through the prophet, and the prophet communicates to God. So, Samuel says to Saul, I'm going to be there in seven days. Well, guess what? Samuel doesn't show up. So, what does Saul do? He does what probably I would do. He says, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. My men are scattered. Philistines are mustering. That means they're getting really angry and getting together. What's going to happen? I don't want to die. And I know that I got to connect with God before I go out to battle. So, I'm going to do this. And that's where Saul and Samuel find themselves. Now, you got to love Samuel. He's like this I picture him like this gnarly old guy who just says it like it is. He doesn't ever, like, beat around the bush. He probably has one of those gnarly staffs that he'll hit you with it if you make him mad or something. You know, he's kind of crazy. Big beard, probably a bald head. I don't know why that looks cool, but but that's the way Samuel looks in my mind. And this is what Samuel says to to King Saul, the hottest and, and currently the most powerful person in Israel. What have you done? This gnarly old man looking up at Saul because he's tall. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw the men were scattering, and, and, what, and you, Mr. Samuel, did not come at the set time, and, and the Philistines were assembling in Merkmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor right? This is true. Here's the key phrase. So, I felt compelled. I felt compelled to offer the burnt offerings. I felt compelled to do it, Samuel. It's not my fault. You didn't show up. Philistines are big bad guys. They're coming after us. My men are running scared. What do you want me to do? Can you hear the excuse? He beats around, and he finds every reason why he was compelled compelled to sin, compelled to disobey the Almighty. Unfortunately, this is a pattern, and it will be a pattern as you keep reading in Saul's life. You can see Samuel leaning on his gnarly staff with his gnarly hands. Verse 13, you have done a foolish thing. Samuel said, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, at this point, like the men are like backing up away from Saul, right? If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, if you had obeyed. But now, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And if you just take a minute and think about the consequence of Saul's action, I'm not even sure Saul gets it in the moment. What a big deal this is. Why in the world would God drop a God-sized hammer on Saul for, for giving in to fear? Do you know how many times a day I give in to fear? Do you know how many times you give in to fear every day? 
I mean, I hate to admit this, but fear drives a lot of decisions that I make. So why the God-sized hammer right down on Saul? It's almost like he didn't have warning. Why is it such a big deal? I think it's a big deal because it's not about what Saul did, but it's about what's inside of Saul's heart. And what's inside of Saul's heart, what we see his actions is the flag, the indicator of what's going on inside. God sees it, and God is not happy with it. So the question today is, what in the world is going on with Saul? We need to know, because I don't want a God-sized hammer to fall on me. I want God to bless me. I want God to be close to me. I want to be connected to God. Saul's consequences are immense. But here's the key. 1 Samuel 13, 12, we just read it. I felt compelled. I felt justified, is what he's saying. I felt justified in disobeying God because of my circumstances. If you fast forward to 2 Samuel 12, 13, David, King David, Saul is long gone. Samuel is long gone. King David makes a horrible mistake, arguably one of his worst mistakes. And you probably know the story. It's the story of Bathsheba. And if you don't know, Bathsheba was this really pretty lady who decided to take a bath on a roof, okay? And David was the kind of guy who kind of was partial to the ladies, let's just say it that way. He sees her. He takes her. He's a king. He can do what he wants. Turns out that he gets her pregnant turns out that she's married, and it turns out that she's married to a guy that's in King David's army. Yeah. So when David tries to hide the pregnancy and can't, David's mind goes to, okay, well, if there's an accident, it'll all be over. So he sends her husband into the worst part of the battle. Turns out her husband's kind of a capable man, and he doesn't die. (laughs) So then he sends her husband and his regiment into the battle, and then they pull back really fast and they leave him alone. David literally abandoned a man in battle so that he would die. And this is the mistake. This is the sin David committed. So Nathan, the prophet at the time, comes to David, and I can imagine his knees quaking a little bit. And Nathan says to David, you really messed up. And do you know what David said? I sinned. I've sinned before God. I am a sinner. I have sinned, and I do not deserve to be where I am. That's David's response. Rewind. I was compelled. I was compelled. Look at all this. David could have said, well, she was the one who was bathing on a roof, okay? That's not what he said. He said, I've sinned. Saul said, I was compelled. That's where we are. From Saul's reign, it becomes obvious that he is suffering adverse. And you might say, well, who in the world isn't suffering adverse? No one likes to suffer. I agree. No one likes to suffer. But I think Saul kind of was at the top of not wanting to suffer. He was very adverse to it. He, like me and many of us, 
would avoid suffering at all costs. And that's so far, that sounds pretty good. Let's avoid suffering. But here's the difference. Saul was so suffering adverse that he saw God as a means to an end. Now, before we get all judgmental, I've been guilty of that. Seeing God as the thing or the person or the creator that can get me what I want, that's like 62.5% of my prayers. <laughs> Seeing God as a means to an end. David, David didn't see it that way. Saul met his trials with, what is the easiest way to get out of this? It's almost like he really thinks he's forced into the situations that he's in, even though he's king. Therefore, he isn't to blame for his actions, right? Look at all, Samuel, you didn't show up. If you had showed up, I wouldn't be in this situation. If the big bad Philistines had waited a couple days to muster, I wouldn't be in this situation. If my weak men had, you know, had a little guts and stood, stood firm, I wouldn't be in this situation. And he tends to see God as a means to an end. So, in order to fix all these wrongs, all the things that are bringing him pain in his life, I got to go, I got to get God to fix this. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to get God to fix it a certain way, but I'm not going to worry about that because I don't have time. I'm going to do it myself. Later in Saul's reign, he actually consults with a witch. The witch of Endor. Ooh, that sounds creepy, doesn't it? The witch of Endor. Saul is in a similar situation, and ironically, it's with the Philistines. He never did beat the Philistines. David was able to do that. Philistines are mustering. He's in dire need. Samuel has gone off and died. He's gone. Can't, can't consult him. No one else can seem to connect to God the way Samuel did. Saul, this is interesting, Saul is even praying to God with no response. So what's Saul's response? I got, I got to find a witch. I got to find a witch because a witch can get me to a dead person of choice. This was the thing apparently that they did. And I can't overstate how forbidden this was, how against God's law this was. But Saul finds himself a witch and he sits down with the witch and he says, I want you to conjure up a dead person for me. I'm not making this up. This happened. And the witch says, okay, who would you like me to conjure? <laughs> and he says, I want to talk to this guy named Samuel, the gnarly old bearded dude that would hit me with a stick, that guy. I want to talk to him. Now, I don't know why Saul wanted to talk to him because the witch does it and Samuel shows up and the first thing Samuel shows up is, why in the world did you wake me up? Saul says, excuse, 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 excuse. I didn't have a choice. And Samuel says, you won't have many choices because tomorrow you're going to be with me. Samuel tells Saul, not only will you be with me, but so will your sons. And Saul's response is almost paralytic. He is so afraid of what this witches conjure Samuel up to tell him that he can't move. And his men are trying to rouse him because there's, the Philistines are coming over the hill. We got to go. And, he, and they can't wake him up. And it's like he's unconscious. He's so terrified. And I think that's the moment when Saul realized what he had done. David's response 
to trials is a little different. He's not more brave, I don't think. I don't think that he has some ability that Saul didn't have. I think they were both men. They were both subject to the same temptations. David didn't like trials and pain. David, unlike Saul, had a way of being willing to wait on God through the trial. David has this propensity for pain. And it's like David lets God determine when enough is enough pain. At every turn, David drew close to God in the trials. He cried out, he wept, he sang, he even got angry with God, but he reached out to him. And most importantly, David trusted God through the trials. I can imagine if David was in the situation Saul was in, where the Philistines are mustering, his men are running, Samuel's not showing up, David would say, okay, we're just going to sit here. We're going to sit here and wait, and I'm going to let God tell me what to do. I can imagine David doing something like that. Listen to the way David talks about God. Yes, Psalm 62, 5 through 7, my soul find rest in God. My hope comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He's my fortress. I will not be shaken. I might be killed, but I won't be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Saul doesn't talk like that. We don't see Saul really crying out to God for anything other than fear. Fear motivates Saul to cry out to God because he does cry out. He's motivated by fear. Love for God motivates David to cry out. I recently read a book by Samuel Chan. Um, It's called Leadership Pain, and it's about um, the kind of pain anybody that's in a spotlight in leadership, if you're a CEO or if you're running your own business or or whatever you're doing or, or pastor of a church, you're in a spotlight. And just spotlight hurts. It's painful. This is what Chan says. At the end of every chapter, he says, don't forget, don't forget, you'll only grow to the threshold of your pain. Kind of gives me hope and, and, and um, excitement for the future. Because as a leader, I hurt. And if I can use that pain, allow God to use that pain to grow me, I can grow. It's painful to be disciplined by God. It hurts. I don't like it. God in Scripture talks about discipline as not being what we think of as discipline, as in consequences for for bad actions. It can be that, but it's bigger than that. Discipline that God talks about in Scripture is the thing that He does to His children because He wants His children to grow. He wants His children to be more mature, to be more reflective of Him and His love. So God disciplines His children, and it says in Hebrews chapter 12, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, because the Lord's disciplines the one He loves. He chastens everyone He accepts as His son. So the question is, are you willing to let God pound the imperfections out of you? Because He only does that to people He loves. I know that sounds weird but it's true. Are you willing to let God pound the imperfections out of you? Or are you more interested 
and not feeling pain. Whatever you choose, obedience or self-reliance, only one kingdom will last, as Saul found out, and it's the kingdom of God. This is the main idea. No matter what trials we face, our growth is determined by how much we let God mold us in the trial. And you can resist God's molding, and I think Saul did that. He resisted what God wanted to do through the pain. He was pain adverse. So are you willing to let God mold you in the trial? Are you willing to trust Him no matter how much pain you feel? That's where David lived. One author I was reading uh, his thoughts on Saul and David, he said this, God used Saul to shape David like a blacksmith uses an anvil to sharpen iron. That's painful. And Saul was actually pivotal in making David the king that he became. God beat David against Saul for 13 years. David was anointed king as Saul was king for 13 years. David lived in caves and ran from his, for his life from Saul and multiple opportunities to kill Saul, and he wouldn't do it. David had pride and self-obsession beat out of him. So why didn't God do that to Saul? Saul never gave God a chance. From the beginning, Saul made excuses for his sin, and from the beginning, David repented and trusted. So no matter what trials we face, our growth is determined by how much God how much we let God mold us in our trials. We get an opportunity this morning to take communion. And I think as we think about Saul and David, it's important to ground ourselves in the trial that Jesus endured for us, for our sake. Jesus faced the ultimate trial. He faced the trial of being abandoned by his Father so that he would be an atoning sacrifice for our salvation. That's a trial. That is a trial. Isaiah even calls Jesus the man of sorrows. That's his trial. He endured so much so that we might become the adopted sons and daughters. Jesus himself said in Luke 22... And this is what he did in verse 19 of 22. And he, Jesus, took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. The endurance of Christ allows us to be who we are. And by taking communion, you're raising your hand and you're saying, not only is God trustworthy, but he sacrifices for me. By taking communion, you're saying, God will mold me through my trials. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your death is something that we can't imagine. Not just the pain that you went through, physical pain, but the emotional pain that you went through. 
to being forsaken by your Father for our sake. Your body was broken for us, and your blood spilled for us. And God, I ask that that rings deep in our hearts. Lord, I ask that we think of that when we face trials. We think of the trial that you faced for us because of your love for us. And God, as we take communion this morning, I ask that it would mean something special. That it wouldn't be just be the first of the month. We do this every month. But that it would be the gospel that gets us through trials. It would be the gospel that gives us hope when everything around us is falling apart. Jesus, you died for us. And I ask that you would give us the courage to trust you through the trials so that we could live for you. We love you. In your name, amen.